At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Professor Gatson, thanks for taking the time to do this today. I'm joined by Professor Marcus Gatson, a professor here at Campbell University School of Law. He is a professional or expert in civil procedure, I rather. Professor Gatson's scholarship focuses on state constitutions. Publications are numerous. He enjoys thinking about heady issues. We had scheduled this a couple months ago. We've been favored in having a very timely set of events happened that kind of brought this issue to the forefront. So I appreciate you joining us. How are you doing today? Lloyd, thank you so much for having me on there. For those of you listening, Lloyd is one of my very promising students. And so he came up with this topic and I think it's going to be one that's really interesting and hopefully gives you a lot to think about. Well, I I appreciate that. So today we're going to talk about nationwide injunctions, why that's kind of become an issue. So just, just to set the stage, What is a nationwide injunction? That's a great question. So let's first boil down what an injunction is. And so for those of you who maybe don't have a lot of experience in the court system, which actually probably is ideal from your perspective not to be in the court system all the time. So an injunction is when a court orders a party to do or not to do something. So it might enjoin somebody from coming onto your land, or in the case of somebody who's polluting, it may enjoin them from contributing further pollution. So it's an order from a court to do or not to do something. And it happens with some frequency in cases between two private parties when they are suing each other or defending a lawsuit in court. Now what a nationwide injunction is, is when a judge orders a party not to do something or to do something, not just in the particular case at hand, but relative to the entire country. So if somebody is suing the government saying that a government policy is unconstitutional, what a nationwide injunction says is not only can you not enforce this law against this particular plaintiff, government, you can't enforce this particular policy against anybody in the country. So the injunction has nationwide effect. So... I think the nationwide effect is what people take issue with. Is that correct? Yes, I think I think so. I think that injunctions just by itself, what I described earlier, where a court orders one party not to do something to another party, very few people have issues with that. It's when a judge says that governments, you can't enforce this anywhere in the nation, even against people who aren't parties to the current lawsuit. And that's really the current controversy that's going on about it. And so the the controversy stems out of the Constitution, is that correct, and and standing issues? Yeah, so what we have essentially is a dispute about the meaning of Article 3. So Article 3 is what gives federal courts the ability to decide cases or controversies. 
And so really part of the debate is do courts have the constitutional authority to issue nationwide injunctions when they're supposed to be just deciding cases and controversy? And then kind of stepping away from the text of Article 3, we get to a secondary question, which in some ways is just as important, which is, is it good policy to let a single district court judge somewhere issue a nationwide injunction everywhere in the country? Yeah, that's given a, a lot of power to a <laughs> district court judge. And, and as we kind of alluded to earlier, and we spoke to earlier, this has come up recently. Justice Thomas just had a vigorous uh, discussion of this. You want to go into that in a little detail? Absolutely. So to make this even a little bit more concrete with nationwide injunctions, this is something that we've seen a lot of discussion about in the last several years. And one of the big examples that you may be familiar with is the Trump immigration policy cases from 2018, where President Trump issued an executive order imposing several travel restrictions on people from particular countries. And the state of Hawaii then files a lawsuit saying that this policy was unconstitutional and that it violated a federal government statute. And a judge at the district court level ended up issuing a nationwide injunction, in effect telling the Trump administration, not only can you not enforce this travel policy here in Hawaii or the district court, you can't enforce it anywhere in the entire country. The Ninth Circuit ended up affirming that. And then the Supreme Court eventually rejected the lower court's analysis about the constitutionality of this travel restriction. And Justice Thomas, in a concurrence, separately wanted to take up the question of universal injunctions. He's very troubled by the trend towards letting a single district court provide a universal injunction. In his opinion, he thinks that the original meaning of the Constitution and the original meaning of Article 3 does not allow judges that level of authority. So we've talked about why it, it may be controversial or why, why critics may not like it. Just at a 30,000-foot view, what is the advocation for it? Why should you know, policy dictate that we continue to use the nationwide injunction? Well, as you say, there's certainly arguments on both sides, and I'll say I think good arguments on both sides, uh, and where you come down may ultimately have to do with how you feel about the merits of the particular policy that's being challenged. And so here would be the case for something like a universal injunction. Suppose just for a second that the government passed a law that was obviously racially discriminatory, that discriminated against blacks or Hispanics in a way that we regard as unacceptable. If a lower court saw that this policy was obviously unconstitutional, that it's obviously discriminating against people from particular racial groups, I think a lot of us would tend to say, well, if the district court sees that this is a racist, unconstitutional policy, instead of us waiting for every other court in the nation to come to that conclusion, let's just have a nationwide injunction and stop an obviously unconstitutional policy from continuing forward. So the argument essentially is if something's obviously unconstitutional and a judge notices that, then we should stop it immediately and not subject other people to the unconstitutional policy while other courts take up the question. So I think the obvious rebuttal to that is then why don't you just do a class action like everybody else? And in fact, uh, some people who've criticized universal injunctions have made that very argument. They've said that, as we've studied in Civil Procedure 23B, which for those of you listening, uh, Rule 23 in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure authorizes class actions and imposes particular conditions. And one of the remedies a class can seek is an injunction. And so 
Uh, certainly one of the criticisms is that the proper procedural vehicle for something like a nationwide injunction is not to reach beyond the particular case that you have, but instead to have a class action. And certainly I think that there is potentially some merit to that argument. So when we think into the implications and how this affects the average voter, I think what people are really seeing is, as you discussed earlier, the, uh, the immigration um, issues. Uh, I think the, the Obama administration had this issue with uh, the quote-unquote Obamacare rollout. Um, how, how, does, how does this um, affect a, a voter? Like, as, a, as a voter, do I need to take more careful um, thought as to who I'm electing and how that implicates um, nomination of judges and confirmation hearings? Should I write my senator to tell them about my district court confirmation? Or is this something that we're just going to kind of have to deal with? Well, uh, that's a wonderful question, Lloyd. And as you know, my bias is always towards paying more attention to civil procedure <laughs> when you vote. So I think that would be a wonderful idea. Uh, but I think, Lloyd, your question actually is very well taken because right now, as you know, in the confirmation process, we focus so much on Supreme Court justices. And you'll remember the Kavanaugh hearings and the Gorsuch hearings and how controversial those are. But if you're a voter and you care very much about implementing an immigration restriction, or if you were a voter who really supported aspects of Obamacare, the reality is that the Supreme Court is the tip of the iceberg. A district court judge anywhere in the country, if they have the authority to issue nationwide injunctions, could stop your preferred policy from going into place. So what that means, A, is that we need to have a fuller discussion of, do we think universal injunctions are a proper tool for judges to apply? And then secondly, whatever you come out on for that first question is, you really probably want to pay attention to those district court nominees. They don't always get a lot of attention, but you can see now that they wield a lot of power over the policies that you care about. So I absolutely think that paying close attention to a district court nominee and seeing what their attitudes are. And in fact, I'd go even further and suggest that for the confirmation process in general, a lot of times we end up asking judges, what's your view about affirmative action? What's your view about abortion or gay marriage? And those are obviously very important questions. But something that maybe is on the surface a little bit less interesting, something like universal injunctions or the rules of civil procedure, may actually affect your life just as much as some of those bigger ticket items. So I, I think that your question certainly is well taken in that it suggests we pay closer attention to issues like this. So the crux of it is disfavor with how a, a district court judge can overturn your politician's policy at such a low level. Then the debate really becomes, how long has this been going on? I think that's what, as we discussed, uh, there's some wonderful scholarship that's been done to, to that front. And so what, what can you tell me about how long these things have happened and how effective of a tool that is for preventing discriminatory or otherwise policy performance. You're quite correct that this has been a burgeoning area of scholarship and a lot of attention has been paid to this in the last several years. And I think to answer that question, one of the first things you have to do is you have to really hone in on the precise question you're asking because one form of the question is how long have judges been able to issue injunctions that affect not just the parties to the particular case, but other parties or other people in society that haven't joined the lawsuit in any way. That 
has been going on uh, as Professor Sohani in, in a, a very thorough piece of scholarship uh, that's recently in the Harvard Law Review. She suggests that has been going on for at least a century at this point. If you want to frame the question differently, which is how long have federal district court judges been able to enjoin a federal government policy from affecting not just the parties to a particular case, but society overall and the rest of the country, that is going to have a shorter time frame to it. And so this kind of goes to a debate that we have in the legal profession, which is how specific do you want to define a problem? Because if you define it simply as for how long have courts been able to issue injunctions that affect not just the parties to a case, this has been going on for a long time. If you want to frame it as how long have federal district court judges been able to enjoin federal policies nationwide, then it's going to be shorter. So speaking of uh, Professor Sohani's article, she, she makes the case that this has been going on for almost 100 years. Yeah, she, she traces this really back to the 1890s. And so she looks at some Supreme Court decisions that deal with injunctions affecting railroad cases and cases where, for example, the state of Texas was able to set rates for railroads. And so issuing an injunction that didn't just affect the literal parties, but prevented the state policy from going into effect uh, statewide. So certainly a much more expansive definition of an injunction than maybe we're used to. So that's absolutely correct, Lloyd, is that Professor Sohani is really tracing the genesis of this back much further back, whereas um, some critics have really framed this, I think, as a much more recent phenomenon that maybe goes to the 60s, so kind of lumping it in with some Warren Court excesses. So so when you go back to the 1890s and, and those first couple cases, they don't really look like the cases we're talking now. Now it's more, this is a policy, I don't like it. Back then, they were a little different, or, or do I have that incorrect? Well... One of the interesting things about that is I think there's an undeniable, what you've asked and I think why the question is so insightful is there is an area where constitutional interpretation and I think policy preference unavoidably meet a lot of the time. And so one of the issues I think with Professor Sohani's use of these cases from the 1890s is she's absolutely correct that the court was affirming injunctions that reached beyond the parties to the case. And I think it's right that that perhaps should affect how we think about injunctions today. One of the issues, though, is that was part and parcel of a discredited approach to a lot of cases. So as you may remember, the 1890s is the Lochner era. And so what that is for our listeners is it's an era where the Supreme Court is using the 14th Amendment and being very aggressive at striking down governmental regulations that affect the economy. And this is something I think that has been pretty substantially repudiated ever since the New Deal, where the courts have given the government much wider latitude to regulate economically. And so some of the cases she's drawing on really stem from an era of constitutional interpretation that we've walked away from a lot as a society. And so uh, I, I certainly think that's an issue with some of the cases that she cited. I think we identified earlier that issue at the heart of nationwide injunctions is the, the standing uh, relating to the constitutional Article 3 case and controversy. How does Professor Sohani discuss that, that initial kind of 
judicial approach to to stepping outside of that with the the Texas case you mentioned? I think we kind of have to really consider her overall approach to understanding Article Three here, and so to kind of back up and talk about that, Justice Thomas in criticizing universal injunctions, his point is that we should look at the understanding of Article Three in 1789 when the Constitution was ratified. And the idea there is that the original meaning of the Constitution should govern and not what people might think today. And and part of the reason for that is I think that originalists would say that that's a more objective inquiry. If we stop the inquiry at a particular date and time, that prevents our own personal biases from seeping in. You can kind of do what you want with that. I'm not here to kind of have a discussion about the merits or demerits of originalism. But Justice Sohani, I will say, or not Justice Sohani, although maybe mm. she she will be Justice Wonder. Sohani. <laughs> Professor Sohani really kind of says that the ship has sailed for originalism when it comes to universal injunctions. The court in the 1890s didn't abide by it. Later courts in the early 20th century that were issuing injunctions against state laws that reached beyond the parties we're not following an originalist understanding of the Constitution. So Professor Sohani would say, and she does say actually in so many words, that really we shouldn't be going by what they were doing in 1789. And then secondarily, the courts just not, have not been doing that for well over a century here. And I think another thing, especially when it comes to constitutional scholarship, is the gloss of history. Is uh, They like to write it in opinions. And it, it seems as though the the longer it, it has existed or the longer the uh, this process or any process really has gone on, it seems to give it a greater validation. Is that an accurate uh, characterization of that form of? Yeah, well, cer- certainly Professor Sohani would say that. And so she would push back on this idea that universal injunctions is this new innovation with no basis in American history. And so that's part of her project here is to say, no, actually, this has a considerable basis in American history. Let me show you the cases that stretch back over a century. Now, that really does tee up a divide in constitutional interpretation, where you have your Justice Thomases and some of your originalists who would say that just because something has been done for a long time, that doesn't mean we should continue to do it. So in other words, if courts have been erroneously interpreting the Constitution for 100 years, the fact that it's been going on for 100 years doesn't change the fact that they've gotten it wrong. So let's just get the constitutional question correct. There's other justices and judges who would be a little bit more cautious and they would say, well, if this has been done for so long, that means that people been, have been relying on this precedent for a long time. And if I just suddenly cut back and say this is unconstitutional, then I'm really upsetting maybe a century's worth of settled expectations that society has. And so even if I personally wouldn't have made this decision myself when it came to me 100 years ago, I'm going to respect it. And so that's kind of one of the divides that you've got in constitutional interpretation is the weight that precedent gets. So as much as it can, are you implicating that there's some form of policy consideration into a constitutional interpretation? And as far as people are relying on this, people appreciate this ability for judicial efficiency. And so by no longer following this process, people will suffer a real tangible harm. 
Is, is that an accurate kind of characterization of the, the non-originalist form of looking at, at this uh, issue? And I would go so far as to say, suggest that even some originalists, and so Justice Scalia famously describes himself as a faint-hearted originalist, quote-unquote. And so even somebody who likes originalism, I think, a lot, really might take a hard look at the practical consequences. And so, for example, if we are looking at economic issues, one of the arguments you might have for a particular precedent and continuing to follow it is that people have organized their economic affairs around something being the law for 50 or 75 or even a century. And so if you suddenly sweep that away, then people who have structured their economic affairs given a particular understanding of how courts will treat an issue are going to be disadvantaged. And I absolutely do think that many judges, even ones who like originalism, really think about the practical implications of following precedent. And in fact, Justice O'Connor kind of deals with this issue a little bit in a line of cases that talks about what is the test. As we talk about in class, what is the test a court uses to approach a particular issue? And so she actually kind of thinks a little bit about what is the test for continuing to follow a precedent. And I'm not going to be able to accurately name all um, components of that test, but it's a very practical approach to whether following an old decision continues to remain something the court can do. And so she, in fact, does take a practical approach to those questions. So we've, we've talked a little bit about originalism. What, what is the, the opposite side of that coin? What, what would be the alternative approach? Well, so originalism would be this idea that we should try to give laws the same meaning that they had at the time they were enacted. And that obviously is a controversial thing in the legal academy and in the legal profession generally, but one that certainly has a number of proponents, including on the Supreme Court. I think Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch would describe themselves as originalists. And then I think the other side of that would be people who describe themselves as living constitutionalists. And so what they would say is we need to think of the Constitution as an organic thing. The people who drafted it were great and they had wonderful principles and we really want to respect those. But we also acknowledge that society has changed since the Constitution was written. And so it follows that since society has evolved since 1789, what a particular piece of the Constitution means may have evolved as well. So with that, let's go back to the Texas case. What was the issue uh, addressed in that case? So this, so in the Texas case, a case called Reagan, this was a set of railroad rates that a commissioner in Texas set mandatory rates that railroads would have to follow in the state. And that got enjoined statewide against not just the particular parties, but also against any parties. So in effect, those rates could not be enforced in Texas. And so obviously, on one hand, railroads and railroad rates are things that weren't around when the Constitution was ratified. Right. And, and neither was the 14th Amendment. Right. <laughs> I guess that's why it's an amendment, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> I guess just to make it abundantly clear, is there a law written authorizing nationwide injunction to say that you can enjoin policy that affects an entire state, or is it? So that's actually a great question, and part of Justice Thomas's critique of universal injunctions is he says that there simply is no legislative authority to do this, and he says there's essentially two sources that you can look to to see whether or not a universal injunction is appropriate. One is you could look at whether it's part of the inherent 
power that courts have under Article III to decide cases and controversies. And since Justice Thomas takes the view that the understanding of the Constitution that prevailed in 1789 is the one that we need to follow today, he would say that there's no warrant for the idea that there is inherent policy, there is inherent power under Article III for courts to issue universal injunctions. So since Article III doesn't support the practice, then what Justice Thomas would look at is, has Congress passed an enactment or a statute of some, some kind that authorizes this? And to my knowledge, that has not been done. So applying that to the, the Texas decision, then, it seems almost that the broader effect besides the people sitting in the courtroom is almost secondary implication of that particular decision in that it's hard to make that decision in a way that doesn't affect people outside of the courtroom. Is that fair? Well, and this is actually one area where we can get very abstract very quickly, but just to try to emphasize this point, which Lloyd makes, which I think is very insightful, is that courts do things all the time that affect more than just the literal parties in a court. So a good example would be take Brown versus the Board of Education when uh, the Supreme Court says that we're not going to continue to follow Plessy's principle of separate but equal in the field of public education. That affected the very specific named plaintiffs, but you better believe that school systems throughout the country were then obeying that decision because if they didn't, then they were in a situation where they could be brought to court and they would have a clear constitutional violation. So an argument can certainly be made that whenever the Supreme Court makes a decision that has precedential effect, that it affects people beyond the case. But I think what Justice Thomas and originalists would say is that the Supreme Court being able to make a binding precedent is part of the Article Three power. So that's the judicial power. That's right, that's part of the judicial power is what I suspect they would say. So with that, I imagine railroad rates in 1890 were probably a pretty significant deal for people, right? I mean, I imagine that's a primary mode of travel probably affected people's bottom line quite significantly, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Is that fair? Definitely. And you kind of have to situate this historically a little bit is during the Lochner era, you have a Supreme Court that takes a much more restrictive view of the government's right to intervene in economic affairs. At the same time, you have that on one side, you have a rising populist movement on another side that is doing a lot of things like passing antitrust laws and things of that nature where they're really trying to promote a much more expansive view of government. So this is actually, the railroad issue is part and parcel of a much larger struggle that was taking place at this time. So, so I think you're absolutely right on that. So do we have a similar struggle going on right now? I, I think you could certainly argue that the immigration cases are something that's hot button or more of an issue than those railroad cases were in the 1890s. Another big issue that I think maybe is a little bit closer would be the Obamacare issue where you have Obamacare, which gives the government the ability to uh, have these exchanges of health insurance and it had other pieces to it, like requiring children to be able to stay on their parents' health care plan until they were 26. And then obviously, most famously, the mandate, which is if you don't have health insurance, then you could have to pay a tax penalty. And so when we're talking about injunctions affecting something like that, you are potentially talking about an issue where the government could pass this very sprawling piece of economic legislation and then one district court judge could stop it from going into effect nationwide and cripple enforcement of it until a higher court is able to take a look at it. 
So that kind of goes back to the argument of how much power do we want a district court judge to have? Is that a policy implication, uh, as you discussed with the, the originalist thinking or the constitutional interpretation? And so this is where I think it, it makes sense as much as we can to separate out what does Article 3 mean and what did it mean in 1789 when it said that the judicial power shall extend to cases and controversies? What did that mean? And then to separate that out from, is it good policy to have a single district court be able to issue an injunction that's nationwide in scale? And certainly I think there's arguments you can make both ways. And I think one of the arguments that's made against this practice is, well, if I'm going to be cynical, if I am somebody who wants to challenge Obamacare, you might think that I find a Republican appointed judge who I know takes a skeptical view of the government's ability to regulate economically, and I go to a district that has a disproportionate share of such judges and file my case there, and then get an injunction. So you might think that this leads to forum shopping, and indeed people on both sides of this debate have acknowledged that that is a potential worry, is that litigants will find the best possible district court that they can sue in, get a nationwide injunction, and that that's something we'd want to worry about. So what's the real difference between if, you know, Professor Gadsden doesn't like the mandate in Obamacare and he goes and takes a suit and, you know, the mandate is found to be unconstitutional compared to Professor Gadsden goes seeking a nationwide injunction pending? Is, is it strictly just time difference? Because I guess in both cases, it's going to have to be litigated on the merits as to is it constitutional? The difference being is that you get relief during that period. Yeah, and so this is where we can talk a little bit about what a preliminary injunction is. And so we've talked about what an injunction is. So a preliminary injunction, what that does is that essentially tells somebody to do or not do something while the litigation is pending. And so what a litigant can do is ask for a preliminary injunction against Obamacare. And one of the showings that they would need to make is that they have a good chance of success on the merits. So the idea is that you wouldn't issue these injunctions willy-nilly, but instead you would take some peek at the merits and you would say, oh, there's a pretty decent chance that this would actually be unconstitutional. So what I'm going to do is not let it be enforced because I'm worried that there's a significant chance I'm going to find it unconstitutional later. That's different from if you sue you go through the district court, the court of appeals, the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court finds the government policy unconstitutional, and then the government doesn't enforce it. That could take several years, as we've talked about in class. In many cases, it takes years and years for the Supreme Court to weigh in on some of these issues. So if I'm a person that can't afford health care, for instance, and or I, I guess to go back to the mandate example, if I'm a, if I'm a person that really is negatively affected by the uh, individual mandate, then I'm still having to deal with it for that three years instead of being able to have that preliminary injunction and getting relief. If I can't get a preliminary injunction, I've got to wait until it's litigated all the way through on the merits. Now, one thing that can sometimes happen is there might be a gentleman's agreement where the government, and Professor Sohani talks about this a little bit, which is that the government says, okay, as a matter of respect and as a matter of kind of giving you an accommodation, I'm going to 
not enforce this until we've had a chance to get a definitive ruling on the merits, but that's a matter of grace. The government does not have to do that, and in fact, they may choose to not do that for whatever reason. So if you can't get a preliminary injunction, you're right. This is something you've got to wait until it's litigated on the merits. But then if you if you just get a preliminary injunction yourself, that doesn't help other people, and that's what gets us into the the need or the argument for nationwide injunctions is that the relief that benefits me does not benefit you. Is that fair? If the, if the court, in fact, chooses not to issue a nationwide injunction, so when they get that request for preliminary injunction, the plaintiff may ask, I just want relief. I think what's more likely now is they're just going to say that this is unconstitutional and this shouldn't be enforced anywhere, but a court could make a final determination on that. Certainly the court is going to have to specify in its order that this has nationwide effect. So if you had an ability to pull out your magic eight ball or your uh, your all-seeing globe, where, where do you see this issue going? I think, what I think is very interesting about this issue is you have critics of universal injunctions on both sides of the aisle now because you have some progressives who were chagrined to see universal injunctions used against Obamacare, and now you have some Trump-supporting conservatives who were chagrined to see this used against President Trump's executive order about immigration. So I actually think this might be an area because you have some bipartisan agreement that these can be abused, that she may see a statute of some kind where Congress limits the conditions under which universal injunctions can be granted. So they may do something that's like a universal injunction can only be issued by a three-judge panel. And in fact, historically, this is something that has happened where Congress has specified three-judge panels to hear certain types of disputes. And you might think that if you get a three-judge panel, your likelihood of getting a rogue Obama appointee or a rogue Trump appointee is less. And that then when there's three judges, that's going to require some kind of consensus where you're more likely to get appointees from different parties to agree on a nationwide injunction. So if I had to bet, Congress will take some action on this to clarify the conditions under which a universal injunction can be granted or not granted. I don't think that they're going to get rid of the process wholesale, and I just will say that we'll then have a larger constitutional debate about whether or not universal injunctions are part of the inherent Article Three power if there are restrictions that are passed. So, so you don't foresee a future in which the judicial system fixes its own problem in that somehow Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, somebody write, writes away, writes a test, writes something which clarifies and gives guidance to district court judges when they're considering this issue. Certainly, I think that's possible. I think one of the issues is trying to read tea leaves for that. And so Justice Thomas has his concurrence in Trump versus Hawaii and just trying to kind of game this out. Uh, potentially, you could see Justice Gorsuch, who has employed an originalist methodology in a lot of his jurisprudence, you could potentially see him joining that effort. And then the question is, would you get Justice Alito, Justice Chief Justice Roberts, and Justice Kavanaugh to follow along? And I think that that's possible. All three judges, I think, have shown some willingness to really make a lot of use of history and to kind of employ an originalist methodology in particular cases. It is hard for me to find... Uh, it's hard for me to foresee the Supreme Court getting five votes at this time to say that universal injunctions are just unconstitutional in and of themselves. 
But certainly one of the things to watch will be, does President Trump win re-election? And if so, does he get more appointments to the Supreme Court? And what do those appointments look like? So speaking of the election, as this comes out, it'll be the day after Super Tuesday. So going into the voting booth on Super Tuesday is... North Carolinians will. What information as it comes from this should should we take away? Should we give this merit and consider this when voting for president and that this might have real implications or is this very low down the pecking order of things that a voter should be considering in the booth? Well, you know, voters I think have one of the challenges all voters have is we all have limited time and there's just a profusion of offices. So there's the presidential primary, which I imagine a lot of listeners are paying attention to, but locally we have all sorts of officers like county commissioners coming up. And so we only have limited time, but I think there is a larger lesson to this dispute we've been talking about, which is that when you think about judicial appointments as much as you can, I would say try not to just think about the topics that get the headlines, like your abortion or your gay marriage or your affirmative action or those topics. Those are all very important. But really try to understand that there's some topics that are going to have a large influence on what happens in your life. I think universal injunctions are like that. So I would really try to see, does a particular candidate seem like they have a sophisticated understanding of issues that maybe don't make the news on a daily basis and see if they are going to appoint people in line with my views on these issues. So doing a little bit of research on some of these issues and really thinking them through, because like I say, they really can have a lot of influence on your lives in a way that maybe is hard to see given how we typically debate judicial appointments. So this is outside of the scope of what we initially talked about, but can can state judges issue statewide? Injunction? That would be an issue that I think is probably going to be a state by state issue. And one of the interesting things is some states have followed federal standing guidelines and followed federal interpretations of Article 3. Some states have not. And in fact, there's this doctrine called standing, which you touched on very briefly. And it's this idea that an individual litigant needs to be personally affected by a case before they can sue and that they have an ability to get their harm or injury fixed by a court decision. Well, a lot of states allow state courts actually to have advisory opinions even when there wouldn't be the requirements of standing met. And I have to confess that I'm not really sure if that's going to be true in a particular state, but not every state is necessarily going to be bound by the same Article Three guidelines that the federal government is. So so as much as people pay attention to their Supreme Court and appellate court voting habits instead of just, you know, voting a straight ticket, maybe that would be something to, to keep in mind as well. Well, you know, this year we have some justices on the Supreme Court up for re-election, and obviously people feel a lot of different ways about judicial elections. But given that we are having judicial elections, you might really think about, you know, taking a half hour, an hour and trying to think of some of these issues that are a little bit less salient and thinking about whether the judge shares your view. Because for good or for ill, you get to have a say about what the philosophy is for judges who approach issues like this. Maybe furthermore, nomination hearings, letting senators know that how you feel about an issue for nomination specifically. Letting them know how you feel about nominations, looking at the questionnaires that are distributed to judges. I mean, there's questionnaires that are distributed that they usually answer. 
And, you know, for those of you who are willing to do it, I, I'm sure C-SPAN probably carries some of these hearings and paying attention to them. And, and obviously you're not going to listen to every hearing, but just kind of getting a sense of, are your representatives even asking about this issue? Because if not, I would su suggest to you that they're not adequately vetting nominees given the importance of issues like this. Well, I'm convinced that we're both going to be watching C-SPAN on the edge of our seats for the next district court confirmation hearing. You know, keeping up with the Kardashians never had better competition, I'm sure. So. <laughs> the ratings will be through the roof. <laughs> Professor Gatson, I appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us today. Absolutely, this was an absolute pleasure, and I hope listeners got something out of this, and I, I think this is, this is a very important issue, and I'm happy to talk about it. Absolutely. And uh, before I let you go, Campbell's motto is leading with purpose. Do you have a uh, example or a way that that affects you? Leading with purpose. Well, I'll tell you what, I think a lot about purpose when it comes to what we, what I do scholarship on. And so sometimes in scholarship, I think in the academy, one of the things we're guilty of is writing scholarship that really, A, just speaks to other professors and B, is written in such a way that it's hard to decipher for somebody who's not a lawyer or even somebody who's a practicing lawyer. And I really think when I do scholarship of trying to do things that are practical, so could a practicing lawyer benefit from what I'm working on? And am I writing in such a way that's accessible to people who are not members of the academy? And so that's something I try to do when I write. Well, that sounds wonderful. I appreciate you, Professor Gatson. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.